Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Svelte Radio. Today, we have another guest on the show. But first, introductions. I'm Kevin, and I run a site called Svelte School, where I teach people about Svelte. And uh, yeah, that's me. I'm Sean. I work as a developer advocate at AWS. And I guess I do stuff on this felt Twitters. Hi, I'm Anthony. I'm the CTO of a startup called Bionk. I'm a supposed felt maintainer. And yeah, that's about it, really. I'm also going to introduce the guest because I know everything there is to know about Luke. Uh, so our, our guest is Luke. And Luke is not Australian. That's the first most important thing there. So Luke Edwards is not Australian, he's Californian. That's very important to know. He's also a co-maintainer of Svelte, and he's the creator of Polka, which is an express alternative, which is uh, focused around speed and also modularity, I believe. And he's been recently involved in deploying loads of stuff to Cloudflare work, which is uh, interesting. There's a whole talk on that you can watch. It's also worth mentioning that Luke owns the most number of open source modules on NPM out of anyone, and that's a fact. Mm -hmm. That wow, is not really? True. Anything that is to not add, true. Luke, apart from that's not true? <laughs> uh, and that's pretty much it. I do do a lot of stuff in the open source world, and I imagine we'll talk about some of that. But for the most part, I just keep my head down and, and enjoy building things. So that's kind of whether that means contract work or salary positions doesn't really matter. I just love to get my, get my hands dirty. So you nice. don't code for money. As a rule, you code for passion, and money is a convenient side I code for interest. I kind of tell, I turn away a lot of, not a lot, but I turn away clients with that sometimes just because if, I, if I'm not interested in it, then it's not going to turn out well and I'm going to find excuses to try to stop doing it. Nice. So. It's funny because I saw a Twitter thread quite recently about actually what got you into tech and the amount of people who'd replied by just showing a little dollar emoji was quite shocking, actually. I couldn't imagine being it just for the money. It just wouldn't work for me. I mean, I'd say I'd say it's partially for the money <laughs> for me. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, it's not. You but you have a passion in it, right? You ha- you you enjoy what yes, you do. You yes. enjoy advocating as well, and, and that sort of thing. But just for the money, just I don't know. <laughs> enjoy life, right? Enjoy life first, and then yeah. I I don't know. I I don't think I could see myself doing something I didn't want to do, don't want to do. No, definitely not. Definitely not. Well, it's also kind of amazing because like some people make like hard career changes, right? Where they're like struggling and stuff and they'll invest the six months, whatever it is, maybe less and like dramatically turn their lives around. So it does start as just money, but like it's so that they can actually do something else and get by better. That's a good point. Maybe people can grow a passion for it when they start doing it. Maybe that's how they got into it, but that's not how they, how they, where they are now, maybe. I think that that's 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 definitely true. I think that's actually kind of, at the core of how I started too. Like I actually was like enrolled in med school. I hadn't started yet. I was doing all the like prereqs and stuff. And wow. Oh, I guess disclaimer, self-taught. But I was maintaining a nutrition blog to kind of like chronicle my journeys through what would be med school and stuff. And as I'm preparing and like working on this, how do I make my WordPress do X or how do I make this better? I just unfolded more and more. And at some point, like someone just handed me a client and said, hey, do you think you can build this? I said, sure, I'll give it a crack. And I got paid. I was like, well, why, why am I going to sign my <laughs> life away for another like six to 10 <laughs> years before I start getting paid if I can just do this now? And yeah. then a passion developed because just questions befolded more questions. So, uh, so you started in WordPress then? 
Oh yeah. Your coding <laughs> career. Yeah. Yeah. Luckily I have not touched it in it's now <laughs> been a decade, but it's still yeah. alive. It's still kicking. So can you take us through what, what, what your journey has been from WordPress to, to oh, where gosh. you are now? Um, <laughs> so I mostly started as a designer actually. So I, I was doing my own WordPress stuff and, you know, I was focused on design and I wanted cool carousels and stuff. So my first, that first client I was talking about was mostly a design work. And then I just implemented it in like basic HTML, CSS, which was all it needed. But it was mostly design based. And then, you know, a cup that lended itself to other projects. So basically I got lucky and it became like word of mouth thing because they knew no one. So all those sort of projects just sort of like honed my design skill set, but then it also honed more front end work. So I basically, I started going from the backbone route into Marionette and then into, I stuck with Riot for a long time, but basically a lot of front end work. And at some point over like the next three or four years, I started having to work with or alongside backend engineers. So back into WordPress, back into custom PHP stacks. So a lot of Code Igniter, a lot of beginning Laravel stuff. And so I just, that gave me some of the beginnings of the full stack experience. And then I became more full stacky on future clients, same clients or, or new ones, and basically lived with a foot in each world for a while. Well, I guess three worlds because there was design in there too. But yeah, and then so the, the PHP stuff eventually evolved into Elixir. And then I came full circle back into Node.js world because I was thinking why Elixir was kind of starting. Not kind of, it was definitely still in its infancy. A lot more people have heard about it now, which is a good thing. Check it out if you haven't. The, so I started doing a lot more Node.js just because serverless was popping up and just there were a lot more companies working with Node.js at the time. And it was just easier to market yourself as a full stack contractor when you, know, you can prove your JavaScript skills on both front end and back end. And so that's kind of where I've been. I've dabbled in other stuff along the way. But that's kind of the like core synopsis of where things are at. So have you tried any of the other front-end frameworks like React? Oh, you, yeah. All I've, of them? All of them. Just because <laughs> as a contractor, you don't really have a choice. You just have to be able to jump into whatever you're doing. It's not the common case that you're starting something from scratch. So it's just whatever they've got, you've got to work with it, try to improve it, build new features whatever it is. So I've done everything except for anything after Angular 2, right? But like all wow. the other, I, I refuse to touch Angular after 2. No, like shots fired. It's just, I, there's no <laughs> like new utility format for me with it anymore. And it's not all that common anymore either, at least in the contract scene. So you've been a, you've been a contractor for, for this, all this long. Like haven't you be temp been tempted to be an employee? I was for the mo the majority of the last decade, but I did so sometimes I would sign on for like a long term contract like with a couple companies, but for the last my longest was with the company for two years. They were transitioning into an advertising company, and so that's where I basically stopped at the beginning of this year, uh, just before COVID lockdown stuff. So good timing on that, but the. <laughs> I was, I was there for two years and doing all of their backend stuff, all the architecture, a lot of front end, but luckily people came in to do the front end work too. And something that's kind of weird because I don't think contracting is as common in the US as it is in the UK. 
I don't think it is. I like if I tell new friends or uh, extended relatives I haven't met before, like I'm contracting, they get a little like, I think it's just a way to say unemployed. But. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's definitely a, definitely a different market. I mean, it's, it's changed over here quite recently, I think, because of the whole tax crackdown and stuff like that. But contracting used to be where people would aim for. And it's mm-hmm. kind of weird when Sean says, like, when you attempt to be an employee, it almost never crossed my mind when I was contracting. And then one day I did it and I spent all the time regretting it and thinking, when can I yeah. go back contracting again? You know, it's, yeah, it's really yeah. different. I was definitely feeling that towards, like, the halfway mark of, of my lat, of my that salary position I was talking about. Just the reason, it, I don't know if, if this is how like I naturally am or if contracting just like promoted it, but I tend to have uh, project ADD, right? Like hence all the modules. But so if, if I'm working on a contracted thing, there's a, there's a fixed start and end date for the most part. So like once that end date is gone, has come and gone, I can move on yeah. to something else, either a new client entirely or just some other new project. And like that works, but if I'm staring at the same stuff for too long, I tend to, my eyes tend to glaze over. And, yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah. My impression of how it works in the UK is that like, that's actually how you get the, the better paying jobs is you contract because mm. there's some sort of rule where you have to, if you go above a certain amount, then then that's, there's some tax issue. Is that, I assume, I assume that's what Anthony's referring to. Yeah, there's loads of weird rules. They've changed it all recently. Like when I stopped contracting, which is like four or five years ago now, they changed all the tax rules around it. But it used to be that you're a company, so you only paid corporation tax. There were, there were a bunch of tax breaks, but also you'd usually get paid maybe three times as much as a permanent role in the equivalent. So anyone with any seniority would go into contracting because it, it made sense you know, at the time. But I think a lot of people abused the taxing and, and tried to pay basically zero tax. They got into a lot of trouble. Um, the government cracked down on it um, because it's kind of an easy, easy win for them. So it's in terms of payment wise, it's become a lot less attractive and they've removed a lot of the protection she had as a contractor because when I was contracting, for example, I was basically an employee anyway. I was treated like an employee by the company. They, I didn't have to get all the shit work. I, I, I had the good work and stuff like that. It wasn't anything like a kind of you come in because you can tackle these problems and we don't care about you or anything like that. So it's very, it's a very different market in the UK, or well, it, it was, than it is in other countries. Let's say in the US, it, it's like uh, freelancing or consulting as well. These are different terms mm. that people use. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Contracting yeah. usually means you have a limited company and you treat yourself as a company. You go in, they don't tell you when to come in. They just say, this is what you want, we want you to do. Do it, kind of thing. And you act as if you're a company, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Sounds about right. All right, yeah. should we get into some... Some on-topic stuff, Svelte, Svelte stuff. Yeah. So you you did a talk at Svelte Summit about uh, cloud-side workers, right? Server-side rendering. Yeah. What, what was that about? So, I mean, what? Where do you want me to start? I guess I, should I give like a primer on workers or just a just a summary of the talk, right? Okay. Like, so basically, I spent probably like twenty minutes out of my thirty minutes, kind of explaining what workers are. On in the front from a front end developer's point of view, right? Like there's service workers, which like some people are happy about, some are mad about. Web workers, worklets, which didn't matter. But basically, I gave this little like timeline of what workers are and how we may already be familiar with them, and then how Cloudflare workers are kind of the same thing, but in a server, um, the same thing as a service worker, but in a, in a one of their servers. And then the big reveal sort of thing was just that. 
Cloudflare servers are everywhere. And so that means that your code will run everywhere. And because it's the way Cloudflare workers themselves are architected, they're basically always on all the time, but you're not paying for that, which is what you would get with a traditional global architecture like one that I set up at my last company, which you pay for it 24-7. So hugely way cheaper. And then I went through a couple of demos to show you like how you can just get started with uh, Svelte server-side rendered within a worker. And I deployed two demos of that. Uh, one where it was like mostly mostly manual. So it kind of showed you like what the, that repo is still alive. So it shows you all the manual configurations and how you would go through it step-by-step. Step. And then like the last 30 seconds of the talk, I revealed this new tool called Freshy, which is kind of all those configurations and build steps done for you. So that with Freshy, you can target, you can build your app as if, as if you would with a, a Sapper or an XJS and then build it in a way so that it's ready for Cloudflare workers or for Node.js, whatever you want, which obviously has overlap with the SvelteKit project, but same sort of thing. So it was just the this summary is turning into as long as the talk, but the whole thing was this, <laughs> this is what workers are. This is how you can exploit them to your benefit as a Svelte developer. Cool. So speaking of SvelteKit and Cloudflare, I'm, I'm a huge Cloudflare worker fan myself. So I, I just got to ask, are you working on, a, on an, an adapter for? There uh, is one being worked on. I personally haven't worked on it yet just because SvelteKit itself is still kind of it's like interface design is a little bit in flux still. So some of the way the current adapters are, which are all node focused, there's a lot of assumptions within Svelte Kit itself that like we have a node backend, but that's not true with the worker. So uh, half, half Nelson, I think, is the one who's done the initial adapter for it. And he's sort of relaying his findings with what needs to change within the current Svelte Kit to uh, accommodate this. Freshly solved it just by basically duplicating the same routing logic, whatever, in different ways for each adapter, which is duplication. But like each of those things only exist once per package, so it's not too bad. I think um, what yeah, what we found is that so I've written these these two adapters for SaltKit, and and Rich has written one, and we've rewritten them all at least three times. But what we found every time we've rewritten them is it becomes smaller and more concise but they've all boiled down to essentially the same bit of code because everything runs on AWS Lambda underneath. Whereas the Cloudflare worker, is, like Luke says, is a completely different approach. It doesn't have Node. It's, it doesn't have all the libraries you need. It's very much... I'm glad I didn't attack it myself, actually, because I, I would be so lost. I think it's made us think about what the scope of an adapter is and what it should do as well, because originally we had this view that an adapter might deploy the code as well, but what that comes out as is we'd have 100 different adapters for every single possible deployment platform when fundamentally they'd all do the same thing. So, yeah, it's very in flux. And, um, yeah, like Luke says, it is being worked on. It's just uh, it's one of those game-changing ones. I think this choice of being node-based is interesting. I do see that more design decisions on, on projects are like, should we assume node because of environments like Deno, welfare workers? Like, these are all just... I guess isolate space. I don't. I don't. I, I like the technical knowledge to to go any further, but it seems like there's there's a slow movement in JS to diversify away against from Node. I, I don't know if you, you you guys see this as well. Hmm. So basically, like Node, I guess Cloudflare. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Like not assuming Node APIs. Yeah, 
Yeah, that, that maybe. feels like a good thing, though. It's weird because people always describe JavaScript as a bad language. Um, I think ES6 has kind of allayed a lot of those concerns. So maybe it's now that people feel the language is so good that we just need to be able to run that same language across multiple platforms, a bit like the JVM does for, for Java and Groovy and Clojure and all every other uh, Scala. I've, I've forgotten even how many languages there are on the JVM, but all of them. Maybe that's, maybe that's where we're going with JavaScript. I don't know. It's where we're going with ES6, perhaps. I don't know. I think the only like, real limitation is when you get into things like, like file system APIs, right? And I don't even know if Dino has a... I know it has a file system API, but I don't know if it has one that will magically work in the browser, right? Like maybe that's where they draw the hard line too. But I, I think until you solve that or things like that, there will always be some sort of division. But yeah, I mean, I agree that like JavaScript should be able to just run everywhere because that's sort of the whole like tagline, right? Like JavaScript, it just runs unless you need compilers and whatever else. But uh, yeah. I think it's always been a missing puzzle piece for me. It's, it's a puzzle piece that people like, probably like you and like Rich actually have, that you build something that's concise but so generic that it can work from a multitude of scenarios. And this is the same now because we're saying that SvelteKit can run on a multiple different backends or hosting platforms. We have to find the right abstraction level that we can take a SvelteKit app and pump it into this and come out with something that'll run that platform. And it's something I've never, I mean, I've never really had the opportunity to do before, but also never really figured that I had a plan for doing that. How do you build a framework? Because I don't know how the world's going to use it kind of thing. And it's something I think some people have and some people just don't. And I'm definitely one of those ones who doesn't. Right. So yesterday I saw you uh, posted a, a new library, another one, or I don't know what you would call it. Maybe not a library, but a preprocessor, I guess. Oh. Yeah, that one's more of like a, it's like a proof of concept sort of thing. The, so for everyone listening, it, it's Svelte preprocess ES build. And there's ES build is this magical Golang driven bundler, which also happens to transpile JavaScript and TypeScript at like blazingly flat, fast speeds. So I've seen some ES build Svelte like combinations already in the community, but a lot of them just don't bother dealing with TypeScript within the script tags. And like, so you'll have ES build there, but then you, these things are just passing the TypeScript through you know, like regular TypeScript, which is slow or, or slower than ES build. So I was like, well, you just have, have ES build do both. Like what's not, have it do both and what's the problem? So I found, found out that there are problems and I'm working to fix them, but the whole project itself is sort of meant to be a proof of concept or like a guinea pig because it should live within Svelte preprocess itself. So this is kind of a way to just like test, test in the real world and like get some, some mileage on it before bringing that risk into Svelte preprocess directly. And the reason that's yeah. possible is because I think as of the most recent major version, Svelte preprocess doesn't do type checking anymore. So you know, ES build doesn't do type checking. So now their goals sort of align. Gotcha. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that kind of brings me to a question that I guess I, I always wondered, but Svelte preprocess used to be a third-party sort of extension to Svelte. And I think it's been brought in to Svelte, uh, like the Svelte org as part of the TypeScript support movement. 
is that is that something that's basically formally managed by the the core team now? Is that how it works? Right. The the people who are already working on spell preprocess before the migration are still the ones working on it. They're just also maintainers. So they're just working on the official org project now, but it's the same project that's just relocated. And yeah, you're it, and you're thinking that the future felt preprocess might be ES build for the TypeScript integration. So the the way that works is basically it's set up with a bunch of transformers ready to go. So so long as you have the correct flags within your component markup directly. So for TypeScript, that might mean lang equals ts, lang equals TypeScript, you know, source equals, you know, there's a bunch of triggers, but it will then only successfully do something if you have the TypeScript peer dependency installed. So it doesn't bring everything with you because it does a dozen or more things, post CSS, SAS, stylus, pug, a bunch of stuff. So it's just, it's pre-configured to do what you want, but you have to bring the engine to do those things. This is um this is news to me. I'm uh, I'm learning a lot on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, admittedly, I haven't used most of it. Like there I know there's a dozen or almost a dozen, but it's a lot of it's pretty much every front end tech you can think of is already pre-configured through Svelte preprocess and a lot of things that I think wouldn't make sense. Again, like pug, not not to pick on it, but um, <laughs> I agree. Yeah, it's just, it's just ready to go, and you just have to install one thing, and, and you're done. It's a nice user experience, or mm-hmm. developer experience. Yeah. Mm. So it's it's kind of an interesting thing that you you're building it in in public, sort of, because I I think you guys always push for for like someone to do it in public first, and then it can be brought in to to Svelte. I, I think I've heard that several times. It's it's a good thing. It's like the it's like the actions package that you uh, started, Sean. <laughs> yeah, um, I haven't touched it recently, but yeah. <laughs> someday we'll we'll get that merged. I mean, this, this is it. People <laughs> people ask <laughs> people ask how to contribute a lot, and I think that's a good way. If you make a product that is that is good enough, then there's no reason that couldn't become part of like the core organization. It's uh, it's a good way to sort of sort of get your contribution in, really. Yeah. Yeah. Another example of this, and I hope it's fine to to mention, but now I'm now I'm forgetting the the, the name. Anyway, in the maintainers chat, there was uh, Anthony. Maybe you remember remember details, but there was a like an error boundary component that was shared from a Svelte library, and never would have thought to use to set up a component that way. And I saw it was news to me. It was awesome, and uh, Rich mm. saw it too, and was also surprised. And a bunch of us were surprised and impressed by it. So now. It's not an ongoing conversation, but briefly in the moment we talked about like should something like this be part of core felt because it, yeah. it was such like its utility was obvious as soon as you saw it and there was enough documentation examples there that it's just it, it it's one of those things where like an RC would have been good but like seeing it actually like alive and working and proven is is just like okay you can't really argue with that. Yeah, so this this is this is Crown Frameworks um, yes, yep. error boundary component. So I think Jafin uh, made it, but actually Half Nelson was the one who originally conceived the idea. Mm-hmm. But what it does is it kind of monkey patches the one of a Svelte component so that you can define a, a perimeter around in your component hierarchy where errors will be caught and dealt with in line. And I think other frameworks kind of have this already, and we we don't. So they made this component and, and published it because they are building like a Shopify kind of equivalent, but in, in Svelte. And it's something I've wanted for quite a long time. And there was like an issue about it. There's no formal RFC like Luke says, but there's a, 
an issue about it. And it does work really well. The monkey patching is concerning because obviously if we decide to change the way components are built, it will break. So there's that kind of watch out. And I thought, well, this is probably pretty valuable. It works. It works well. And it's got a, it's got a kind of a nice felt fluent UI, not UI, but kind of interface. So yeah. And, and it's, it actually is quite surprised because, you know, maybe I spend a lot more time in the community, but people hadn't seen this. They hadn't been exposed to it. So those those people saw it quite impressed with it, so I was, I was happy about that. And it's it hopefully will be discussed at the next maintainers meet if I can get it high high up enough the, the list. Um, the original <laughs> authors of it are very interested in making it part of Coursefelt, it being a PR, but obviously they also also have real jobs, so they're um they're not going to promise anything before <laughs> before the end of the year or even even maybe January. So we'll see how that goes. But but yeah, it's definitely um it's definitely something that we'd like to have because it's super valuable to be able to catch errors within a certain hierarchy and, and and deal with them there rather than your whole application exploding <laughs> yeah yeah so didn't you uh add this add this to bianc i think you were talking about i this. have yeah checkout now uses it so anything mm-hmm. anything that's in the most probably the most critical part of the application will now be caught and what we did actually we um we installed Sentry. So Sentry, for those who don't know it, catches errors and logs them and gives you a stack trace in a, in a kind of isolated system. So you can see when users are having front-end errors in your site that you can't otherwise see in your logs. I talked to the guys at Sentry about what's going on here. Uh, you know, why isn't there a, a, a Svelte integration? Kind of trolling them, really, because you know, they had React <laughs> and Ember and everything else. And, uh, and they replied saying, well, because Svelte doesn't support it, basically. I was like, what? So um, so yeah, I uh, I then sort of start investigating, push the issue a bit. And uh, hopefully there'll be um, some more news soon with a bit of luck. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exciting. So speaking of the of the maintainers meeting, do you guys yeah. have that every every other week or so, or is it every other month? Uh, once a month. Once a month. Yeah, <laughs> typically towards the end of the month, but with uh, Thanksgiving in the US and Christmas, both at the end of the month, it's the end of the year yep. this year, it's getting a little dodgy. I'm not sure if it's actually <laughs> going to happen this month, but we'll see. So Under the year will you... definitely end. It's scheduled. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Can you guys talk about anything that's, uh, that might be coming up that might be interesting? Well, I mean, Svelte Kit, I mean, will undoubtedly be talked right. about, and it will probably be the majority of the meeting. Right. But yeah, like Anthony alluded to, there's usually a list of things that like come up during the month that we want to talk about. And then it's just a matter of accumulating thumbs up to, to see like the order that they get talked in. Sometimes we will, in meetings past, we would end up talking about, we would have a list of like seven or eight and like Sapper would be second or third on the list. And then we just end up talking about Sapper for almost the entire meeting. So <laughs> the, whatever we didn't get to just becomes part of the next, the next month's list. And I think that's co- sort of reason for, for Svelte Kit being so important because the reason Sapper dominated was because it is a bit janky in terms of code bases. It, it's kind of evolved and it's not really a good place to maintain and stuff. So certainly it'll be nice to have that kind of off the list. Maybe Svelte Kit will take its place, he knows. But it's initially at the start of this maintainers chat, it was difficult to get past issues because they were big issues. But I will say that we've definitely got through those big issues now and Things are a lot more free flowing, I guess, which is which is definitely a good sign. And slots was another one that just had a lot of things around it. People wanted the original design was more limited than people needed it to be, and that got attacked pretty quickly. In fact, I mean, it's it's Tanley how just attacked most of it, but uh, yeah, that's what he does. His machine, <laughs> yeah, big props. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's one thing to highlight though is the big 
like the well to me at least the major value in SvelteKit is is its flexibility. So like Sapper was great, especially in the beginning, because it did if you had a use case that fit Sapper, like it worked really well, right? But as time went on, your needs may change. You may need to add things. You may need to do more complex things because your apps evolve, and it, it's that fitting tends to not evolve with it because it, it's it was so opinionated is a strong word, but it it was so good at just what it did that it wasn't really possible to have it move beyond. And so there have been really good community efforts for other solutions, Routify, Elder JS. Um, forgetting some, but there are multiple out there. And so SvelteKit is sort of the Sapper 2.0 where it's going to be really good at a bunch of different things so that, you know, you can, your applications can evolve with the same tool over time and not hit some sort of ceiling and be like, okay, shoot, now what do I use? And more modular. Probably worth mentioning more modular because I think that's a big, it's a big theme is modularity. Mm-hmm. Being able to sort of pull out things you don't want and put things in that you do want. Right. Yeah. Right. So Cloudflare workers, I want to, I want to talk more about Cloudflare workers. Okay. Well, what's so great about them? Well, they're, they're just incredibly quick and they're practically free. So, I mean, most people, it's something like $5 and you get 10 million requests a month, right? And then it's wow. 50, 50 cents for every million beyond that. I mean, like, you just you can't beat that, right? And That's they also true. just execute quicker. So if you have something like a Google function or an AWS Lambda, like, they, they have to start up. And most of what that, those platforms are doing over the years is trying to make those startups smaller. But, like, workers launched with effectively zero startup. I think it's less than, shoot, don't quote me. It's either less than 10 milliseconds or, like, 50 microsecond startup. I, there's... Those are the numbers that come to mind, but it's it's one of those. Why why is that the case though? Again, don't quote me. <laughs> it, it has to do with how they how they store your upload. So they support multiple languages, and all of them have some relation to Wasm. So they, I think, what they do is they compile it on upload to Wasm or some isolate whatever, so that it's basically already in this ready to go state. So that instead of like starting a node process or starting a whatever, it's it's just there and an ongoing. Again, this is how I imagine it: an ongoing VA engine or something is just pulling yeah. in these different files. Say, okay, you go, you go, your turn, your turn. And so it's, there's no parsing time. There's no ready, set, go. It's just go. So essentially, essentially, assembly language running on a essentially a processor. So something like it's not it's not uh, interpreted, which which Node and JavaScript obviously are. That's, that's right. interesting. Again, it's, it's kind of backwards from where we, where we came from. Yeah, and it happens on upload. And I thought when I first ran into that, I thought it was a bug. But <laughs> basically, it's understanding your code when you deploy it. So the reason I ran into this is I was working on a validation library, which I still haven't finished. But it, the core of it relied on like a new function, right? Like you, you're programmatically creating a new function. And then the whole library was just creating this function body string so that it could be evaluated. But that's unsafe, right? And so Cloudflare Workers has this unsafe protection. So it disallows new function, disallows eval. And it was detecting that within 30 milliseconds of me uploading it. So the entire request on my side was 30 milliseconds. And it came back saying, hey, online, deeply nested line on like line 200, whatever. It's saying you're using new function. You can't do that. So it's doing some amount of 
parsing, and then I remembered, oh, it's doing isolates in the background, so it has to to know what's going on. Okay. Like all of these too fast for me. (laughs) I think like all of these like serverless, I don't know what to call them, like services or I I can't even imagine how complicated they they must be to to like make from Mm -hmm. scratch. It's it's pretty pretty cool. I imagine it's super satisfying though. Yeah. I mean once you once you've got that running with no with no cold start time and then it's been the biggest complaint of every serverless provider in the world cold start time then that's pretty impressive yeah. and i was talking to a friend of mine actually who was talking about fastly doing a similar sort of thing and it he said that there is a lot of complexity with com- compiling to wasm because yeah you, you can't rely on all those libraries being available that you that you normally have you just can't bung everything in and, and ta-da it's like it's like writing isomorphic code on the client you don't have things like process you don't have file system all that kind of stuff so yeah i imagine it's deeply complicated in fact so the people who nail that are going to be the new, the new AWS. Sorry, Sean, but it's true. <laughs> I think Cloudflare are doing AWS, amazing things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I always thought that. So the missing part is state, right? Like, and uh, that's that's why I was that's why I was pretty excited to see that they launched this like new durable object thing, which is actually strongly consistent. That that seemed at that point I was just like, okay, Cloudflare, you you own this. Like, this is this is amazing. <laughs> I want to buy your stock. Like, this is, uh, you know, I I actually did buy Cloudflare stock the other the other week. <laughs> I mean, they're, yeah, they're wow. totally dominating this this new cloud. So it's, uh, I mean, I, I think the the drawback is that you can't really, right? You you can't really pull in any node library, right? New cloud for worker, can you? Because of the Wasm thing, right? Yeah. Well, you can't pull everything, but you can certainly pull a lot of things, right? Like it depends right. on how specific like the module was, right? Like the, most node libraries are so big that it's kind of impossible to know everything that's going on through all the, the dependency chain, but something like classics, right? Like my class names alternative thing, like that doesn't care what you're running on. It's just a function that returns the string. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of, uh, of, of your uh, libraries and stuff, so w- what motivates you usually to, to like build these? They're quite, quite small, right? And they, they're very specific to, to certain problems. Yeah. It's usually like curiosity, um, sometimes anger, but it's usually a curiosity. <laughs> so it, it's just to see like what's going on under the hood. And so I say anger jokingly, but like if I'm using something and I'm realizing that everything else I have in my application is small or is running pretty smoothly, but using this one thing or waiting for this one thing to run doesn't feel quite right, then that's going to pique my interest to say, okay, what's going on there? Like why... This is just an HTTP request. Why is this thing like consuming hundreds of megabytes of memory? Or why is it failing half the time? Why do I have to do this in order to send that? It's, so that kind of is, you can call it like some form of OCD, I guess. It's just being particular and I feel like things aren't exactly right. And so that kind of just goes somewhere into the back of my mind and say, okay, this probably should should or could be done better. And then I get to at some point and then I basically treat each one like a puzzle. So. I add this extra constraint of making it either as small or as fast as possible, hopefully both, but that's usually not the case, and just see what I can do with it. But it does, well, unless unless it's like a necessary thing, like unless it's an application I'm actually working on and that bottleneck is currently present, it's some of these things can take months to refine and to to figure out just because it is a puzzle and it is 
for fun, but not most. Pretty much, well, it is most, but 90-something percent of the time, something doesn't get released until it's. I know it actually works and it has been used in production stuff, either my own or client stuff, to say, like, okay, like, it did make, it did satisfy the the requirements I had for it. And then so I, I try to have this unspoken promise that, like, if I release it, it should work unless it's, like, a not dot, a zero dot whatever release or has, like, a work in progress mentioned somewhere on it. But yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll mention one of the you have many libraries and, and uh, that's something I admire, but also am a bit terrified by. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so so I think it's worth mentioning that I think Polka and Serve and Saad or Saad, Saad, I'm not sure. Saad. What? <laughs> Saad, like okay. the musician. It's Saad, I a don't know who that is. <laughs> CLI framework that's as smooth as Saad's voice or something. That's the tagline. <laughs> Should listen to uh, it today. All right. Well, we'll, we'll um, yeah, we'll, we'll mention it. But yeah, like these are all used in this whole ecosystem. Like I think serve is the the default way Sapper was serving files, and and that's that's pretty awesome, and it's pretty notable how fast it is. That was actually one of the the first things that drew me into felt. I was like, oh, okay, it's not just about the compiler; it's also about the kind of people that are drawn to felt will also not tolerate the slowness that is in the rest of the JS ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you you are one of my prime examples of like. Yeah, like if, if it's not good enough, you'll, you'll rewrite it and you, you're not afraid to do so, whereas yeah. I would. <laughs> yeah, well, it is, it is definitely daunting. So one, one, thank you. But two, like an example of this was just this week. Josh Duff is listening. He and I have been talking about me. Well, it was my fault, but I mentioned possibly having like another fetch, another like node fetch in node, but not node fetch just because node fetch, I know it's being reworked, but it's pretty big and most of the time, you don't care about like the rest of what NodeFetch is doing. Um, mm. So I said like, oh, I'll just make another one. But it's kind of a bitch, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> and like they, and I'm sure that the NodeFetch teams know, knows this and props to them. But if my, my idea was just to set out like a, a very simple fetch compliant wrapper so that you can use fetch as like, like you would in the browser, but in Node. But I was like thinking, well, so many things are built on fetch and so many things are built on like those properties of fetch that I don't use, but like the streams API, which everyone uses in the browser. And so, so many fetch based wrappers would break in my current version of fetch just because it didn't implement streams. Well, this is where the bitchiness comes in because implementing like readable streams in a browser way, which node has always had streams, but not the browser's versions is this becoming this huge oh. undertaking and so yeah it can take a while and i i guess one thing to, to mention because people ask me a lot is why the reason i have so many of these like mode variants of my modules like dequel has dequel dequel light clona has three modes a lot of my things have modes and the reason is because like i go through so many iterations of modules that like i'm trying to figure out what i want but i'm also thinking well not in this fetch case, like not everyone's going to care about like the streams API. So they can just pull in the version that they want so that if you want uh, numbers now, if you want like the full node fetch, it will be like a kilobyte and a half or something, right? Which is mostly the streams stuff. But if you just want to fire off an HTTP request that uses a fetch looking API, like that's 400 bytes, right? And so it's just... Again, most people don't care, especially in a Node.js context, but if you're doing something like workers, right, or using building a Svelte kit that can do 
a can have movable backends, you know what your HTTP requests are going to look like. So you can just pull in a package that will satisfy all of those different backends, a browser version, a Node.js version, and a workers version, if it's different, and just pull that in and it's ready to go. So that's, that's kind of what motivates me with all these different modes, but it, it does mean that things take longer to finalize because I'm thinking of all these different use cases for how they might fit. So speaking of, uh, of uh, Klona, I, I have to ask, is the name meant to be yes. the Swedish word, word yes. for cloning? <laughs> yeah, so it is? I, I think it says oh, on the top, awesome. <laughs> um, it, it says like why Klona, and it says it means clone in Swedish, and then it also says why, oh. why the sheep logo, and because it's Dolly. So Dolly the, the sheep was the first Dolly, time right. cloned, and so it's a sheep becoming a sheep. Yep. I had probably I like too, more fun than I should have had making that logo. Whatever, I'll own it. <laughs> I do notice that you you spend time you spend time with the polish like the the logos the banners like these are yeah these are nice touches yeah sometimes not all the time but if if something comes to mind that seems like it could work and I go for it sometimes that affects the name choice too if I can help it are you, are you squatting on any good names like <laughs> sorry <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay I'll tell you I'll tell you my my squatting so I have happier so it's it's and I also have prettier -er. So th those are, <laughs> if I ever want something, I can do that. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think I have any, I have a name that I thought, so I only try to use names if, or reserve names if I like have a use for them. Um, because I have so many, I don't want to end up like in a situation where I get banned or whatever from NPM for squatting on names. I don't know, it's just risk aversion, I guess. But one name I do have that I planned on using but didn't was Y2K. And it's not really a good name, but I feel like uh. it could do something with it. Yeah. I feel like in general for, for libraries and repositories on, on GitHub, like it's, it's always nice to see good readme or like a good, like the first impression is more important than, than what most people would think. So yeah. It's nice. I, I think it should be something you want to read. Readme is one of those ironic yeah. names. Like I get this with clients all the time. You leave them this like really complex or not complex, thorough readme for them to read, to say like, this is what I did for you, here's how to use it. And they don't read it. It's like, that's, that's, what, the, that's what the file is called, readme. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Any, any last few questions? Well, I, I wanted to especially highlight Uvu, UVU, which Uvu. is a test runner that I, I, think, I think it's been one of my, your more successful launches this year. Yeah, I'd agree. And not, not like I pay super close attention, but it, it seems yeah. like, it's worth talking about because most people think Jest is one of the most universally loved tools according to the surveys and you made a competitor. Yeah, maybe not in terms of like utility, but I definitely made a competitor that competes on the speed side, right? Like, so I, I'll have, the reason I made it is because I was working with a client that had a massive Jest suite and it ran, and it's not specific for them, but it took minutes to finish and it was only something like a hundred suites or something, which may have been a thousand or two assertions, but like a hundred isn't that much at all. And then, so I spent a weekend converting it into Uvu and it was, I mean, so if I'm talking minutes for Jess, it was like 8.9 something seconds with Uvu. It's just like wow. Jess was doing so much like setup and prep work and stuff. And a lot of it admittedly was how they were doing hooks, but like, because Jess was set up, the Jess uh, files were set up in a way that made it not obvious that their hooks were sort of running more than they should have been. 
it kind of just didn't feel right. And even at in its best case scenario, you're looking at like probably would have been 45 seconds versus the same eight seconds. So it, it still is slower at the end of the day. But you, as of today, you can do, for example, browser testing out of the box, which is a JS DOM backend anyway, but that's not something you can do with Uvu out of the box unless you set up a, a register hook or something. And I have examples of that in the repository. So you can definitely do it, but it's not going back to the modes conversation a second ago. Like I don't, I try not to put in th things in by default unless I think it's going to be used by default. So I don't think most cases are going to want JS DOM by default. So I'm, I don't include it, but it's easily, easily added if you do want it. Awesome. Nice. Cool. Well, um, all right. Thanks for all your open source. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, do you guys have? Uh, do you guys have picks? Picks. We've again this not where... informed the guests of picks. <laughs> yeah. We do well, it every he's, single he's podcast. The, he's heard the show before. <laughs> I know what it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and it's it's mostly just like whatever we enjoy as well, right? So yeah. I mean, yeah, it could just Nothing. be like the Nothing weather. Serious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, I don't. I don't actually have one. <laughs> is this is this the first episode without picks? Uh, well, might be. I don't. I don't know yeah, it doesn't have um, to be tech related, right? Doesn't nope. have to be tech related. Okay, yeah. I have a pick. Okay. 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 So it's it's a game called Rummy Cube, which is kind of an old game, and some people may have never heard of it. But basically, it's like Rummy with cards. If you've ever played with it, but it's with tiles. And I like it as a developer because when you have down these games of three or four or whatever, and it's either in straights, oh, does Sean have it? Rummy, oh. oh. So that looks like yeah, a knockoff. Yeah, I play with my family. Yeah, it's a, it's a knockoff Rummy, Rummy Coop thing. Yeah, yeah. But, but that's the same thing. It's just, you just need numbers. <laughs> yeah, you just need numbers. And you can play with cards if you don't happen to have the game. It's basically two decks, but with two jokers, which are the wild cards. And I love it as a developer because it's basically refactoring the whole time. So like right. you play these, play these <laughs> games down. Sean's laughing because he knows, but anything that's down on the board is open to be regrouped and rearranged. So you have to keep track of all these, these pieces and arrange new games or new valid games using those pieces and not having any invalid games before your time runs out. So it's, it, it's pretty fun. I think my parents fun. have it. I think they must. I think they must do. They've got. I recommend stealing it. it. It's pretty fun. Yeah. So, <laughs> so like my, my family's version. My family's story is like we played it at like a family gathering. One of our one of my cousins brought it, and then we loved it so much that we got it for ourselves. It was just within my family. Uh huh. And then my dad got so obsessed by it, he downloaded a mobile app to to practice on his own, and then he yeah. started being insanely good. So there is some skill to this. Yeah, I, I play every day. I mean, I played three rounds before the podcast this morning. So. <laughs> Wait, by yourself? Like oh, on, on, on the a... app. Uh, so oh, there, okay. there's an official Rummy Cube app or whatever, and you're supposedly playing, <laughs> you're supposedly playing other people around the world, but I'm pretty sure they're all bots. <laughs> and, you know, but it's fun. Yeah. All right. Any other picks? I, I actually have one now. Go for it, Anthony. Oh, so I have a pick now because Luke inspired me to think of the whole cover behind me, the board games. And... A boarding card game. So my pick is definitely Monopoly Deal. So if you like Monopoly, if you can imagine it being playable about 15 minutes. So yeah, Monopoly Deal. It is 15 minutes long Monopoly. Um, no one can see on the camera anyway, so I'm not sure I'm holding it up, but I am. Um, and it's super, super vicious. So if you think you get angry in Monopoly, you can get three times as angry in this in like a quarter of the time or something like that. It's crazy. 
it's just really, really nice, like fast paced, the same kind of concept, but everything sort of compressed down a bit so that you things happen more rapidly and they happen more directly. And it's just great fun. So I recommend this game to anyone. Does that, and you, Does that just mean you get like more money more faster? It means you get more <laughs> money faster. It means you often, if you're me, get cards thrown at your face by your wife. Um, it, it genuinely is. is so, just so you get her money faster. Oh yes, I de- I definitely do. I mean, <laughs> she would contest that, but of course, you know that's part of the fun, right? <laughs> There's a lot of stealing. So I have at one point been playing with two other people, and at one point in the game, had enough built up in my hand that I could take all of their stuff off the table. So it's just me having everything and no one having anything else. It's that kind of direct. <laughs> it takes if you play one round. You will learn all the rules, and that's all you need to know. It's uh, it's not a long a long learning game. So fifteen minutes, and you're done, basically. Great nice. fun. All right. Yeah, I, my family plays that too. So ah. the two of you picked the, the top two games then in my family. <laughs> <laughs> so fully endorsed. I have a game as well. Yeah, actually, Ooh, or okay. rather we'll, a we'll game service. A game thing. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I I tried uh, Google Stadia last Ooh. night, and I was actually blown away by how well that service works. Nice. If you don't have a gaming computer. So it's basically a cloud gaming service. Right. But which one did you play? But, oh, I, I played like one of the free ones that comes with the service. So I think it was Orcs Must Die 3. <laughs> a lot of people went into that, that name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's pretty cool though. Like the service, like there's no latency, latency or. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Nice. Okay. I recommend it. Okay, well, uh, I had to pivot to a game pick because yeah, all of you picked <laughs> games. So Jeremy Wagner actually pointed me to this one, but apparently this has been around for a while. Cookie Clicker has uh, it's a it's a browser based oh. game. Ortail.dashnet.org. Cookie Clicker. Just just Google Cookie Clicker, you'll get it. It's a clicker game, so you just click, 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 and then and then you set up factories and machines to to help you get more cookies. <laughs> and and it's it's a really mindless game, <laughs> but it's uh, it's pretty it's pretty addictive. I had to, I had to, st- I had to close it down and stop playing because it was, it was really that addictive. But uh, it did give yeah. me an idea <laughs> that our next Svelte Society or a Svelte Summit activity, because I think we we want to have trying to have a tradition of like when we have a conference, we'll we'll also have give people something to to code up and and show off and and demonstrate. And last time we we picked something too hard, but I think the clicker game could be just just good yeah. enough where you can get creative and and bring in some art assets and do some animations. So I think I think that would be my uh, my pick. Cool. All right. I think that's it. So Luke, where can people get a hold of you? Twitter, website, Twitter, GitHub, Discord, uh, Lukeed everywhere, but Lukeed zero five on Twitter. That's it. All right. Cool. cool. Thanks for joining us. Thank you guys. And thank you all the listeners for uh, for sticking with us for an hour. And uh, <laughs> happy New Year. <laughs> Goodbye, everyone. Happy New Year. Yeah. yeah. And Merry Christmas, yeah, I guess. Yeah. It's probably yeah. the last one before 2021. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Definitely. See you guys all, all right. next year. Bye. Yeah. Bye. See you soon. Bye bye.